We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a guest that I am very excited to speak with this week. He, his, his background is he has a senior leadership role at Shell Oil, but he is also a chess journalist, a chess trainer, an FM, and he has written an absolutely fantastic new book called The Anon Files, The World Championship Story, 2008 to 2012. So for those who haven't seen this book from Quality Chess, um, it delves into the the behind-the-scenes details of three of Vichy Anon's World Championship matches. It's I can't recommend it highly enough, so I'm really excited to speak with the author. So without further ado, uh, FM Mikhail Abel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Ben. And I'm really pleased to be on your show. It's such an honor. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, once I, this book is right in this show's wheelhouse because we talk chess improvement, but we also talk chess life. And we like to get, I mean, there's no detail that there's not, nothing can be too detailed in terms of uh, the life of a chess professional, especially someone at the the level of Anand. Um, 
it's it's just the the perfect thing to talk about and i was excited for this book and i couldn't put it down when i was reading it so um just to give a little more background for for listeners uh mike michael he's uh he's donating the proceeds of this book to charity so in addition to it just being a fantastic read that obviously was countless hours in the making uh he uh, by appearances is a good guy is this can you confirm this mike you yeah yeah absolutely um i think the the concept in a way is on, on one hand i have a very uh, good job at shell so i didn't write this book uh, to make more money um but at the same time when i think about charity and i think uh, most of us donate to charity in, in one way or another. Uh, I think there's a concept that really uh, attracts me, which is that you, um, when you donate something, you also get something in return. And I think here the idea that you can donate and in return you get a wonderful chess book uh, is, is hopefully going to help. So absolutely all my proceeds, all my profits will go to charity. That's great. Yeah. And speaking of uh, a wonderful chess book, in addition to the, the content being amazing, it's just a beautiful physical book. Uh, the, you know, I read a lot of chess books just because I like them and for the podcast. And usually I mark up the books so that I can um, I can refer back to them when I want to highlight certain points to discuss with people that I know I'm going to be interviewing. But I took one look at this book and I just couldn't write in it. It's too beautiful. It's got the the color pages and the beautiful pictures. So I had to keep a separate notes file because it's just so well presented. Yeah. And and I was extremely lucky with the fact that it was printed in, in full color. And, and the, the pictures that have been made available by, by Katie Rogers and Eric van Rijn. I mean, uh, Katie is, is a very professional photographer who's been around the world for more than 20 years and, and publishing in all the top chess magazines. Um, Eric was actually um, uh, part of Team Anand in, in the matches in, in Sofia and uh, Moscow. So that gives uh, quite a few behind-the-scenes pictures that are in the book. And I think in, in general, there are a lot of pictures that uh, in itself uh, just tell, tell a story. And, and those pictures I, I really like. So sometimes you, you see a picture, for example, I think it's, if I remember correctly, somewhere around page 77 or 78. And if you, if you look at that picture, you see uh, Kramnik and Anand in, in a press conference. And they both look very tired and you think, oh, just just a normal game. There's no way telling that actually, if you uh, went through the game uh, that is in the pages before that, Anand just won a fantastic game. But the guy almost never shows his emotions. And, and that's exactly what you see in that picture. And, and I think that's such a wonderful picture. Yeah, your story checks out. I've got the book right in front of me, and it's pages 78 and 79. Yeah, and it, he, he does look weary. You, you wouldn't guess that he, that <laughs> yeah. he just won the game. Um, so, But before we get more into the contents of the book, Michael, I thought it might be helpful or interesting for, for me and for other listeners um, if you take us from, from the, the initial spark, the, the first idea that you might want to take on a project of this scope. Yeah, well, in all honesty, I, I think uh, I never realized what the scope was. Yeah, it, it starts with a nice idea, and then and then halfway through, uh, you think, "Ooh, this is a lot of work." Uh, but you, you you're too enthusiastic about the idea, so you don't want to stop anymore. But um, basically, um, I've always been inspired, uh, also because of my job, 
in, in leadership books and, and the so-called how-to books. How did a, a certain person, whether it's, it's a sports star or a, a CEO, how did they manage a, a certain uh, success that uh, others didn't? What did they do differently? And I, I think there are a lot of books on, on the market, but very rarely they actually tell me uh, real insights that I, I find useful and that I find inspiring. Uh, too often they're, they're a bit superficial and, and just repeating success after success. And then uh, even more so in, in the chess world, um, I have a decent collection of chess books myself. I, I think about six, 700 chess books. And in there, I couldn't find any book that, that would really tell me about the secrets of, of, of world champions, what they did differently uh, to, to obtain that uh, title. And I thought, well, I, I would really like to find out what kind of strategy you develop, um, how do you try to trick your opponent, what kind of things worked and, and what didn't work. Uh, also, uh, try to find out what, what were mistakes that were made. All the kind of things that um, nowadays, if, if you go to the press conferences after a World Championship game, you, you don't get. You, you just get the, the obvious answers, uh, not wanted to give away any info to the opponent during the match. So I think in, in a way, um, there's a lot of curiosity in, as part of my character. And that's what I tried in, in developing this concept and developing the book. And I thought, hey, I, I want to have this book that tells you the secrets that could both be relevant for, for chess players, but also that you could potentially apply on corporate life. Does that make any sense? That, that does make sense. Um, yeah, and and you definitely, you, you achieved the goal. I mean, uh, Anon comes across pretty well, I would say, for someone under a lot of pressure during the critical moments of this book. Um, and he he gives quite an endorsement of the book. Uh, he, he wrote the uh, foreword and... Uh, among other things, he says, basically, I love this book. Um, so I, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I mean, this, this was a very special episode. Um, I, I've been working on the book, like I said, many years. And early on, uh, Anand, uh, this big star, I didn't really dare to, to reach out to him that I was working on the book. Uh, didn't want to do that directly, uh, just uh, by email. I had talked to him a few times in the past and interviewed him uh, during chess tournaments, but it, it felt like a big step. So I thought maybe I take an indirect step. So when I was interviewing uh, Ganguly, uh, one of his seconds in, in India, uh, Ganguly asked me, is Anand okay with this book? And I said, I'm not sure, but would you be willing to help me and send him an email? And then uh, Surya uh, said uh, he had sent the email and uh, Fishy was okay. So I thought, okay, I just move on and uh, move on. And like I said, the scope was much bigger than expected. So maybe three, four years after that moment, I uh, signed a contract with Quality Chess. And then suddenly they said, yeah, but we're only going to publish this book if, if Anand supports it. Hmm. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, but uh, there was this email from uh, Ganguly, although he never sent me a copy, but let me ask him. And Suya just tells me, uh, email? I, I don't remember. I don't remember. I discussed this with Fishy. I'm like, oh, no. So hmm. I now need to go to him and maybe seven years of work can wow, go down, seven the, years. down <laughs> the drain if he, if he doesn't support. Yeah. 
Man. And then um, he was playing in Weikansee. Uh, and and I think most people know that uh, this tournament in January in in the Netherlands, usually the the weather is awful. It's stormy, it's rainy, and even though I'm Dutch, I'm not immune to that. Hmm. So um, at the tournament, I went there in the after the in in the first round, and I um, uh, was watching his game. And first, his position was much worse, and I thought, hmm. If he loses, I'm not going to ask. Yeah, him. exactly. I'm going <laughs> to wait. <laughs> and then afterwards, he turned around and, and, and he won the game. So I went to him and I said, well, uh, Fishy, uh, I'd like to talk to you uh, about a, a certain project. Can we do it on uh, on the rest day? And he said, uh, no, no, I need to maintain my focus, but I'm staying a couple of days after the tournament. So let's do it then. I thought, okay, I'll wait two and a half weeks. Why not? <laughs> How far are you from um, Weekend Z? Oh, very close. It's just a 20-minute ride. Oh, okay. Uh, so then I thought, uh, and I work actually in, in Shell in, in risk management, and I was thinking, and I was thinking, okay, if I go on, on the final day and I ask him when we can talk, and then on the final day he would lose, Maybe he storms out of the tournament hall, and uh, I I don't know what we agreed. So let me go a day earlier. What I hadn't counted on is that typically in January, with that weather, uh, I caught the flu. <laughs> so I, I was really miserable, probably the worst flu in many years. And actually sitting at home on the Saturday, uh, the the 12th of the 13-round tournament, uh, I was thinking, I have to go. So I literally drank one and a half liter of Diet Coke just to be able to stand on my feet. I drove to Weikansee. I grabbed a chair in the press room and didn't do anything until Fishy was ready. And then I waited till he came out. And I said, hey, Fish, uh, we were supposed to discuss this after the tournament, Monday, Tuesday, when you want to do it. And he told me, oh, no, I have other plans then. Why don't we do it tomorrow? Hmm. So on Sunday, again, I had to drink a liter and a half of Diet Coke to, 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 with, the, with the flu, feeling miserable, going to the press room, sitting there again. So he's ready after the game, and he comes over, and we have this short chat. And I say, well, I've actually written this book, and uh, I would like you to, uh, to read it and, and write a foreword. Yeah, that's okay. If you email it to me, then uh, I'll send it to one of my uh, helpers, one of my seconds, and they can read it. And I said, no, Fishy, I want you to read it. I've interviewed all your helpers and your seconds. Hmm. Oh, oh, you want me to read it? But I'm, I'm quite busy, etc. may take a bit longer. So that's fine. Take all the time you want. And this was end of January, and I had a mental note that uh, in May... If I would not have heard from him, I would uh, chase him with an email. And then suddenly on a Friday afternoon in April, I received this email from him with, I think, two words. See attachment. Hmm. So I opened the attachment. It's an audio clip. And it's literally the entire forward as it's now in there. Oh, wow. I was jumping out of my chair. I, I was so nervous. I thought maybe he doesn't support it at all. The entire audio clip was exactly what you now read in the foreword. And he had he been in touch with Quality Chess, with unbeknownst to you during this period, or he just went ahead and, and wrote that forward without uh, talking with anyone? Without talking to anyone. 
Wow. <laughs> That's a great story. That's amazing. And so take us through the feelings, like when you're sitting there in, in the press room, how, um, how nervous were, were you? I was extremely nervous. I mean, I was feeling miserable. And, and you only get uh, maybe two, two minutes to convince him to actually read the book, to endorse the project. Yeah? And I actually wanted him to, uh, to write a foreword uh, because I thought that would be much stronger. Um, and, and there were so many different scenarios already when I prepared for, for that two-minute uh, chat in, in terms of scenarios running through my head, what could, could happen and how he could answer. It's almost like a chess game. You, you try to anticipate and, and try to think, how do I steer him in the, in the right direction? Yeah, uh, it's, it's impressive that you were ready to, to make sure that he read it because in, yeah. in, the, in those situations, often you're just you're nervous or you want to go along with what the person suggests. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I had to push back because indeed, uh, like he, uh, he, he was, uh, first thought was, Oh, I'll give it to one of my seconds. And I thought that that's not what I want. Yeah. (laughs) That's well, (laughs) thank you for sharing that story. That's amazing. And, but rewinding a little bit. Um, so at the beginning of the seven years, what was your first step for writing the book? Who did you contact first or what did you write first? So I, I first contacted uh, Peter Heine Nielsen, and he had published already some info on on, on some of the match games in uh, in a Danish chess magazine, uh, Skakbladet, uh, and I think most of the issues you can still find uh, online. And and basically, uh, what I did is that I translated them with Google Translate, and I started uh, interviewing uh, Peter Heine. He was very uh, initially very willing to cooperate. Uh, later, it became more difficult because uh, he was so busy with uh, Magnus uh, as a second. And he, he had just uh, changed uh, teams uh, maybe a year before from Fishy to, uh, to Magnus. Uh, and, and that was, I think there was an, a question on Facebook around this, around why are the Carlson matches not, not in the book? Yes. And, and the reason is that um, the seconds that Fishy helped, uh, so a, a team of four, uh, uh, Nielsen, Kazimjanov, Kanguli, and Wojtasek, they helped him in the three matches that are in the book. And immediately after that match in um, Moscow, the team significantly changed. So Nielsen went to Carlsen, uh, uh, Kazimjanov stopped, uh, Kanguli started doing some other things, and only Wojtasek continued. And for me, uh, to be able to uh, do the proper analysis on what worked in the team and what not, and to, to draw leadership lessons out of it, I thought it was more important to keep the team stable. And, and that's why I, I made the cut off after that and, and not the Carlson matches, because you would get a very different team. Uh, oh. On top of that, of course, also Vichy uh, lost the matches against Carlson, so it w- would give a very different insight. But who knows? Maybe one day uh, I'll write a, a, another book. I'm not sure it will. I will. I would invest another seven years, hopefully a bit faster. But then I may actually look at those matches. Right. Well, I was going to say another reason might be that seven years is enough <laughs> at yeah. some point. Um, yeah. And this book, yeah. you, you know, this book. Um, as I mentioned, it's a beautiful book, um, but it's, it's 500 pages as it is. So. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a large, large scale project for sure. And um, Mikeyo alluded to a question from Facebook. So just, just to clarify, uh, Mikeyo made the um, the unusual but I think great request that 
in addition to as I always do, I uh, let my let the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters know that Mikeo would be interviewed, but he also wanted as many people as possible to be able to submit questions. So I reached, I made a post on Twitter and made posts in the um, Chess Book Collectors, the the awesome Chess Book Collectors Facebook group, which has somehow over twenty thousand members, which is just mind boggling. And there's often good dis- discussions about chess books there, um, and in the Perpetual Chess um, Facebook group. So we solicited questions in all those places, and Mikeo has seen these questions. So he was alluding to a question from Igudijus Zer. I hope I said that name even remotely correctly. Apologies if I didn't. So we'll be referring to those uh, periodically throughout the show. Um, So I think it's time to get into the book. Although one question I had, um, so as you mentioned, also, there was a nice write-up that Sagar Shah did on Chessbase India um, about your book that just came out um, a couple days before we're recording here, where where you also mentioned that you had the goal of this being sort of an opening, um, uh, like uh, not an opening book per se, but certainly you can learn a lot. You wanted people to be able to learn about openings from this book. Yeah, I think there are uh, basically three different levels in the book. So what what you want is, first of all, a a collection of fantastic games. And I think I've tried to explain the games at the the level that anyone who follows uh, chess games online from from the major tournaments is also able to to follow the games in in this book. So there's absolutely no need to be an expert. For example, uh, I've, I've tried to put in as many diagrams as possible so, so you don't need to take your board out. Yeah? Of course, if you want to, it can be wonderful to play overboard, but it can also be very nice and relaxing just to grab the book and go from diagram to diagram without uh, trying to put 10 moves in your head because for most of us, uh, that's, that's not uh, possible and, and you just lose interest in the games. Well, in itself, I think uh, there are some really fantastic games in there. Uh, some of the wins that uh, Anand uh, played against uh, Kalnik are just incredible high level. And I think he admitted that himself that it was probably uh, the best chess he ever played. And to have all those three matches now in, in one book, I, I think is quite nice. Uh, and if you want to properly explain what's going on in, in those games, then I thought it, it was okay. Uh, really a must to explain the openings because basically uh, it's about strategy yeah and and what i try to do in the book is explain what is the the strategy they developed for their opponents uh, how to beat uh, kramnik how to beat topolov and by the way i think those strategies were almost 180 degrees different but um, then how do you work backwards from that strategy to the type of middle game positions you want to uh, reach and from those uh, middle game positions, what type of opening lines do you then need to play? And basically, from those opening lines, I, I tried then to put in the book not only what uh, was actually played on the board, but also what else was prepared and what were some of the other options. And, and did we see those other options coming back later in, in other tournament games? And uh, some of those have still not been played. So there's also some novelties still in the book that, that you can still use. But I think they, they give very good background on, on a number of lines. For example, very topical nowadays, if you want to try to beat uh, the Sveshnikov, which uh, Carlsen has made uh, tremendously popular. I think there's fantastic uh, theory around this in, in the Galfant match against, uh, with the Rossolimo. So I think, yeah, the, there's good theory. But I think that's only one part of, of the book. I think the, the second part 
is uh, that I referred already to is then also uh, around the leadership lessons yeah and 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 what can you learn uh, from that uh, how do you coach someone like Anand yeah I think there's some uh, tips in there on on how Kazim Janov uh, actually managed to stand up and intervene and 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 give Vishy coaching advice which I think uh, shows uh, a lot of courage but also you need to do it in in the right way and I think in in itself uh, that is a very nice thing but also you can actually apply that to daily life and again there were some questions on on facebook around can you apply these things in in your job can you apply these things in daily life i think lots of these things how anand managed his team how uh, they develop as a team how you bridge different cultures how you work with uh, setbacks all those kind of things you you find back in the book uh, so I think that's a, that's a second layer, yeah. Besides uh, the fast, fantastic games and uh, the opening theory, there's the second layer on 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 leadership lessons, like any, yeah, I would say inspirational leader book uh, has nowadays. Whether you take someone who who climbed Mount Everest or uh, other kind of big journeys, I think you also find that in this book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot there for sure. Listeners, we're going to pause for a minute to tell you about a potential holiday gift for yourself or for another chess enthusiast. It's the Strong Chess Robot Square Off. It has a beautiful chess set, automated movements, and you can connect it to apps like chess.com or you can just play the computer. Order now at squareoffnow.com and enter the online coupon code SHOCK, S-C-H-A-C-H, for a 20% discount, that's at squareoffnow.com. This ad is brought to you by the Satrank Multicultural Chess Club. If you're in Cologne, Germany, you should stop by it and say hi. More info, as always, in the show description. But now it is back to the interview. So I think there's a couple uh, threads to pursue from from what, what you were just discussing. But let's let's stick with the openings for now, because I was really struck. As you mentioned, there's uh, good, good uh, Sveshnikov um, insight from the Gelfand match, also a lot on the Moran. Um, and I was just the depth of the research. I mean, there was one line that I think was, was over 30 moves given. Um, so what was that daunting for you? I mean, you're, you're a strong player, but you can't know every opening <laughs> 30 <laughs> moves deep. So how, how do you approach that? Yeah, I think, uh, uh this was a lot about, uh, preparation and, um, uh, it leads into uh, the question someone asked me in, in terms of, um, and I think it, it was an, an, an honest question, uh, were you actually the right person to write this book? Were, were you qualified? And I, I think um, initially I had a lot of hesitation and I threw away maybe five, six different versions of, of, of the manuscript initially because I thought uh, it was too boring and, and, and not the page turner that hopefully it is now. Uh, so I felt quite quite insecure, as, as you also can tell from the story I told about approaching uh, Vichy for his support. Yeah, I, I didn't have a lot of credentials. And, and, and you feel, yeah, am I actually the right person? But with hindsight, I think there's a very big advantage on on me writing it versus an insider. So if you have Nielsen writing on, on Anand or, or, or say on, on Carlson, then what you get typically is, is a very uh, positive outlook on, on how things went. And what I actually try to do in the book is 
to bring balance and also show things that went completely wrong or, or show things where they had uh, fights over in the team. And I think um, when it came to uh, getting that info, uh, that's where I come to my word preparation. I needed to prepare a lot before I interviewed uh, any of these seconds. Because if I ask the standard questions like, can you tell me something about this game? I, I will only get the positive things. So typically what I did is before my interviews, I would go over the game and I would uh, try to study all the relevant theory that was in, in that game, plus any of the games that the seconds played in, in the years after and uh, before that game. And, and basically I made a study of, of that particular opening then, even before I started the interview. And then uh, the first interviews with Nielsen were probably the hardest, but then um, once you move to the second and the third and the fourth uh, player, uh, you can also contradict them with different viewpoints. And with that, you, you try to uh, get them to uh, the more uncomfortable situations where you say, hey, but I learned this, why didn't it work? And, and, and they start opening up more and more instead of saying, staying in the comfort zone, which is their initial uh, reaction of, of just saying, hey, everything was honky-dory, it worked perfectly, we had a nice novelty, and, and we won. Yeah, that, that was the initial response you, you would typically get. So I think on, on the openings, a lot of preparation, but also on the questions. And then, yeah, in a way, I tried to trick them, and hopefully you find that back in that not everything in the book is described perfectly, but also lots of mistakes and things that went wrong. Yeah, it's amazing. It's kind of like a, a, it's like a thriller narrative because you really, you really get a glimpse of uh, what the seconds are going through in terms of like trying to guess what the people are going to play, and then of course that, you know, when they put in many hours and maybe they have a novelty somewhere that they've devoted like a month of their their lives to, you want to they want to see it played, you know. So of course, yeah. of course, there's going to be com- competing interests and uh, rooting interests that are. Of course, they're rooting for for their team to win, but they also they they want certain things to to see the light of day. I remember uh, Kazim Danov in in the most recent World Championship match. He was of course headed Fabiano's team, and he was saying that only only one percent of the the work that's done for a World Championship team ever sees the light of day in a World Championship match. And I, I found that really surprising when he said it, and I didn't really have the context to understand it until I read read your book. Uh, indeed, uh, and I tried to put in the book, uh, I don't know, I probably didn't reach the other 99%, but but a large portion indeed that what never got to the board, uh, I did get out of uh, out of the interviews. And uh, uh, I think with that, you, you get a great overview of, of the lines that were played in the match. And I think also some of those lines uh, have been kind of forgotten. But if, if you start using them nowadays, I think they can be very effective. For example, this this line in in the Moran, which uh, in the book is called Kazim's baby, right. um, uh, I think it's it's extremely dangerous to play. Yeah, you, yeah. you can probably score a lot of points with it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how this stuff uh, makes its way into the chess world, how popular it becomes, and stuff like that. Um, uh, another follow up on the the topic of openings. This is um. Patreon question from a friend of friend of the podcast, uh, John Hartman, who also, of course, does book reviews for Chess Life magazine. Uh, he also loved the book for, for what it's worth. So I don't know if he'll be um, 
I don't know if he'll be able to to get it into chess life, but if he does, I think <laughs> I think you'll be happy with what he writes. Um, uh, so here's what John asks. He says, what kind of preparation work besides opening did Anand do? In the book, we hear a lot about opening prep, but one would think there's more to world championship prep than openings. Um, actually, yeah, there, there's a little bit more, but, but not so much more. So it, it starts with actually profiling your opponent. Uh, but that's more a job for the, for the seconds than, than for Anand. Because in a way, he knows his opponents already so well from the many years that, that they've met each other in, in tournaments that that profile in, in his head is more or less ready. And, and the seconds will do then an extensive profiling based on all the games someone has played. And, and maybe sometimes there are some additional insights that Anand may have missed, uh, but it's moving it from, from 95% to 100%. Uh, 95% the profile is already in his head and uh, of course uh, he's such a fast thinker uh, in such a high speed and and, uh, having these fantastic insights that it's very hard to tell him something new about Kramnik or Toplov or Gelfand that he he hasn't realized himself yeah Uh, yeah but but it starts with with that profiling Um, then the the second part based on that is, is really uh, having a discussion on uh, what type of positions do you want to uh, play against uh, that person. And that's um, a lot more relevant than in tournaments. Because in tournaments, you, you just play one game against that person. And almost anything uh, could work for, for that one game. One game openings, but also uh, one game ideas. Uh, it's much less relevant in terms of uh, getting someone in your own territory or, or moving away from his territory. In a match, that's extremely important. Uh, and, and it's that whole strategy around the type of play you want uh, that plays a key role. And I, I think uh, in, in the book, you see uh, the opposite sides versus uh, the match against Kramnik and the match against Topolov. Um, and, and also, uh, that's maybe not in the book, but when you think about Anand's predecessors, I think Karpov is, is very much known for a certain style. And Kasparov also. And I think uh, when you see certain games and, and you don't see their names, you can still recognize this is Karpov style, this is Kasparov style. I think uh, Anand to some extent is being uh, a bit less recognized as, as, as uh, a famous world champion because he doesn't necessarily have his own unique style. And I think that that's part of uh, time, also with, with the uh, engine uh, power nowadays. But I think his power is that he can actually, a bit like a chameleon, completely change style if necessary. And, and that's what you see. Against Kramnik, he played extremely aggressively. And, and for example, also, he prepared the Sicilian dragon, which uh, he yeah. never played. Yeah, and and maybe, maybe if you see in the book, it was only to his good that it never got mm-hmm. to the board. <laughs> But um, extremely aggressive. Uh, well, against Topolov, he completely changed and he almost copied Kramnik's style, who had beaten uh, Topolov before. Um, I, I think it's extremely difficult to change your own uh, preferences in chess to uh, such an extent and, and then still be successful. And I think the fact that Anand actually did this, I think is, is just amazing. So, but coming back then to preparation, that means that it's going to play a very big impact on 
what type of middle game positions you want to achieve and how that influences your openings. So John's question on what else is there besides openings, I think uh, there is a lot of thinking, but in terms of time spent, 95%, 98% in the end is on openings. What is the other time spent on? There's also always a bit of uh, physical exercises. So for example, in Germany, in, in uh, Bad Söden, where they typically had the training camps, they went for uh, a lot of long walks and uh, some exercises, tried to play some sports outside. But you also saw that uh, some of the preparation activities when they were in winter and everything was covered in snow, uh, it actually had an impact on, on the team dynamics. You see that they struggle a bit more as a team. They become a bit more frustrated. And to some extent, they, they uh, relate that to the fact that they've been there so many times before and they know each other so well. But I think it also has had to do with the fact that they couldn't really go outdoors. Um, but coming back to preparation is then a physical exercise. And there's a little bit, but only a very tiny bit, on um, uh, doing some um, calculation exercises. But someone like Anand, he, he doesn't really need it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing insight because chess is such a, I mean, obviously openings are important. Um, and when you, especially at the elite level, but when you look at the games, I mean, of course, most of the games in a world championship match are not going to be decisive. Um, but even when they are, they aren't always decided by the opening. Um, certainly it plays a role. But I guess part of it also is just that, as you say, they're already so good at calculating. And I think maybe I'm guessing because it surprised me. I had the same reaction as John. I mean, obviously, you know that openings are a big part of it. But the fact that it was basically in terms of chess work, like you mentioned physical exercise and mental well-being and stuff like that. But in terms of chess work, it was almost the exclusive um point of emphasis for these players and I, i'm guessing that anand is not alone in uh in that approach but i guess part of it also is it's the part you you have the most control of like even if you did need to work on calculation are you really going to get better at it in a month like to the extent where it makes a big difference and of course you probably wouldn't be playing for the world championship then anyway um and and john had a, a follow-up question because obviously um following uh or hand in hand with this emphasis on opening is just the incredible amount that these guys have to memorize. And of course, we've heard many stories on this podcast about the the memory that Anand has. Um, and of course, Magnus Carlsen recently, Chess Base India, I uh, put out these great videos where uh, they quiz, quiz, they're celebrating Anand's birthday this month um, and doing like a month of Anand celebration. And um, at the um, big tournament in India, they quizzed um, uh, Magnus Carlsen and um, Anish Giri and some others, Erwin um, Lamy, Anish Giri second, about famous Anand positions. And their recall of games that aren't even theirs is is impressive. But with uh, with that big prelude out of the way, John John asks um, how how if you have any sense how they moder- how they modify the summaries and study in order to keep up with the immense flow of opening information that the teams give them. Um. Yeah, and and by the way, I thought it was an amazing creative video that Saga put uh, Saga Shah put together. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's been. I mean, they're Chess Space India is always great, but the last month or so, <laughs> they've been they've stepped it up another a whole another level. It's been awesome to read and watch. Yeah, I don't think we, it exists, but uh, I would be happy to grant an, an Emmy or an Oscar to Saga for the, yeah. for this uh, for this idea and how he executed it. Yeah, yeah I so, agree. So much talent in the, in the, the reflected in that video. 
Um, but uh, yeah, coming back to John's question, um, I think, um, yeah, it's not, not so easy. Um, I, I don't know then. Um, so the, so it's how do the, it's questions of if they have memory tricks or if it just comes naturally to them to to memorize this much theory. No, I mean, there's there's a limit to it. On one hand, all these top players have photographic memories, but the reason I'm hesitating a bit on on how to answer it is that they have photographic memories, uh, and it's also clear as, as you get older, you, you start forgetting things, and and it becomes a little bit less. And it was clear that in in the match against Galfond, Anand was uh, forgetting things and and didn't know exactly how how certain things uh, w were anymore, or maybe even things they had recently shown to him. But then the the question was: Is this now because of uh, getting older that he starts forgetting it? And and that was the uh, typically uh, the reaction in the press. But actually, I think when you when you read the book. You, you see that uh, it had more to do with the fact that this was the match where he prepared both one e4 and one d4 with white. So in that sense, that that doubled his repertoire for, for white already. And then uh, on top of that, uh, Galfond played openings that they didn't properly prepare for. So an um, uh, enormous amount had to be done during the match. Uh, with uh, preparing the F3 Greenfeld, which is a huge complex. I think uh, you can write an entire book on, on just uh, that line with transpositions, for example, to Samis King's Indian, but also lots of new theory to be developed. Uh, and, and the Sveshnikov was also completely unexpected. So I think if you put all that together, uh, it, it probably was too much to remember everything. And, and I think because of that, there, there were certain lapses. Now, the team uh, saw that happening, and, and they also actually already before they, they started uh, the match in Moscow, Anand had played a uh, tournament, uh, I think uh, the Tall Memorial. Um, and uh, he, he started well, but then he, he ended uh, not so well. And, and this also struck his confidence. And I think at, at the top level, uh, playing with confidence makes a very big difference. And it's one of the things that uh, these top players all think about, how to arrive at the game with a, a good level of confidence and, and how you can influence that. Uh, and it's something the team also uh, thinks a lot about. So how do you speak up uh, towards someone like Anand, but also how do you make him feel good, both before the game, but also after the game? So one of the things that that, that, you, that you see is that uh, the team often struggles with what type of info to share with Anand after the game and what not. So uh, did you have a winning position and did you miss something? Yeah, maybe, but it wasn't so easy. Well, the engine might say it was plus six, yeah? Mm -hmm. But the team was really thinking about how do we create that, that right spirit because that can really make, make the difference. Um, and and I think oh, similar to that, coming back to John's question on how did the team then try to help Anand in, in remembering the right things? Yeah, you, you try to prioritize, but also you you try to ask him certain questions, Anand, while while you go over the summary files, um, that make makes him think a little bit. 
But the difficult thing is that um, at, at my level, I can just ask uh, um, if I coach or train someone, uh, with, uh, just say, hey, why do you play this move? Or in this position, which move do you play? But here you have a situation that 26, maybe 2700 low uh, seconds need to ask that question to Anand. And, and they feel that certain questions could be seen as disrespectful. Yeah, and, and that plays a big role, I think, in, in the team dynamics throughout the book in terms of how do you influence such a superstar as Anand, but you still try to, to, to coach him and influence him in a, in a positive way that he's actually listening and that he's receptive to it. And the team struggled big time with that in, in, the, in the Moscow match in, in showing or, or, or trying to help him making sure he understood the concepts behind certain moves and, and, and that he would understand the differences between certain positions. And for especially when you think about the line they played there in the, um, the A6 type of Slav, where a lot of positions looked very similar, uh, it was a huge burden on the team on, on thinking on how do we explain to Anand the difference between position A and position B. So it's, it's a great question from John. I don't know if I in the book really gave a, a clear answer other than that this was one of the biggest struggles in the Moscow match. That's interesting. Yeah, in the Moscow match, the 2012 match against Boris Gelfand, um, uh, just, just to be clear, um, yeah, it's so insightful. And just one other sort of follow-up about the this topic of openings. You you revealed a lot of, uh, I don't know to what extent this information was in the public domain, but it was new to me. A lot of the people that uh, moonlighted on various Anon teams um, over the years, I don't know how how many of them you want me to give away here, but I mean, uh, um, Kramnik helped out and Kasparov and uh, the Topolov match. Um, so, I mean, it's really interesting to me to, to read that sort of behind the scenes information about other people who are brought in. Of course, Jonathan Rousen, who's recently been on the show and a lot of chess fans have been enjoying his book. He he wrote about what the experience was like for him sort of popping in in the 2008 match. And you also mentioned that. Um, and uh, I am Gary Lane uh, chimed in on the Facebook book collectors, uh, chess book collectors thread. And he asked how much effort goes into identifying secret team contributors. So do you have any information about that, Mike? You? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, it's a bit something I, I said earlier that uh, in, in principle, the, the seconds were not willing to give away any of these secret, secrets to me. So it was about preparing uh, for the interviews. And then suddenly you start noticing that, that lines that were uh, played or, or maybe uh, lines that were given to me uh, in, in, say, the, the Sveshnikov, for example, the, the Rosolimo, that you say, hey, they've analyzed this and that. And I see in the database that eight months later, after the match, uh, person X play, plays a game with this, with, with white. And then, of course, in the, in the, in the second interview, uh, you go back to that second and you say, um, hey, uh, I noticed that uh, Mr. X played this, uh, this system eight months later. Uh, did you guys work with him in, uh, during the match? Yeah. And, and that's how you try to, to trick them in, wow. in, 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 in revealing. Yeah. Should be, you should be a detective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, even then, there are a few cases where um, um, 
uh, it, my suspicion was confirmed, but I was told uh, not to uh, put the name in the book. Okay. So there are, there are still some secrets out there uh, where basically the agreement is that uh, it stays a secret. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly, and I, I've challenged some of them on uh, why, because uh, I think uh, it's been so many years ago uh, why I don't think it, it could damage anyone. Uh, but there are, um, uh, yeah, kind of silent agreements that this information uh, will be kept secret. Uh, there are also other things in, in uh, that I found out uh, during the book uh, uh, process that um, I've deliberately not put in the book. So, for example, you will uh, not find things on, on uh, financial terms and conditions because I don't think it, it was so relevant uh, to, to write about that. Um, there, there are some other things that, uh, I mean, basically, I, I want to provide a balanced view in the book, uh, things that go, can go wrong, things that, that, that went well, uh, but I didn't want to uh, damage anyone. Uh, the idea is that uh, everyone played a, a fantastic role, uh, and, and hopefully, you get that out of the book, but you also see that they're all human. So, yeah, they also make mistakes. Yeah. And speaking of financial terms and conditions, I know that you didn't get into that too much. And I certainly understand uh, that it's it's a, basically a private transaction between the parties who agree to it. But I did find it interesting where when you were telling the story of uh, Vojtasek initially getting involved, saying that he didn't even ask like does you yeah. know what does this pay does this pay he was just like all right i'm in you know yeah it's yeah. it's it's team and yeah. on let's do it yeah. and, <laughs> um, and, and, and it was the same with kanguli yeah uh, uh, he also didn't ask any questions uh, fantastic to uh, to work for his uh, country's hero and uh, like chess got un- unbelievable and i think um that that's one of the things Again, um, I don't have a lot of uh, writing history. So one of the struggles I had is that I put those lines of text there, yeah, three, four lines around how Ganguly perceived it. But the, the challenge for myself was, do I make clear enough to the reader how big the, the gap was between Wojtzeck and Ganguly versus Anand in, in the first match? Does yeah. the reader actually understand that? Because, uh, like you said, Ben, it, it's a bit of a page turner, and I, I was afraid that sometimes people would go too fast to to the next page and and not realize because it's only two or three lines of text, yeah, how big it is. And it's those kind of things I I, I put a lot of thought into. And I'm still not sure I, I did it in in the right way. Uh, same as I said, uh, sometimes uh, the picture tells tells an entire story uh, instead of uh, a full page of text. Um, I think there, the book sometimes asks also for reflection moments. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you finish it too quickly. Yeah, I'll be rereading it at some point for sure. Um, but I do want to just pull a little more on Gary Lane's question because I, I think his specific question was about sort of counter intel. So, and I know that you had um, ah. you had a nice quote um, or a nice little nugget from uh, Peter Hein Nielsen when he was uh, putting together the 2008 team or when they were doing research where he mentioned that he had seen in a DVD that that Kromnik did about his match with Kasparov that not only did Kromnik look at all the uh, openings that. 
that Kasparov played, but he tried to look at all the openings that members of Kasparov's team played. So I think what, what Gary is getting at is, do, do they make active efforts to determine uh, who's, on, who's helping the other team during the match? I think, yeah, it's not so easy to say what is active. Um, I, I think they, they do ask a little bit around, but at the same time, what you see is typically that the team is locked in the hotel room and, and therefore uh, not really uh, connected to a lot of people. And, and, and you can chat a little bit online with, with other GMs. Uh, they, they, they do follow a little bit if, if people uh, disappear from the, from the tournament circuit for, yeah. for three, three months. Yeah, that, that is suspicious. And you think, oh, uh, he might be working for, uh, for the opponent. Uh, I think the, to, so. that's a bit the, the intelligence they do. I think, for example, in the recent uh, Carlson matches, uh, for a long time, uh, or maybe even during the entire match, uh, Caruana didn't really know who, who was all working for uh, for Carlson, and and maybe it's also not so relevant nowadays anymore, because, for example, if if you take that very first match of of Kramnik, uh, I thought it was very funny that they found out that uh, Fresinet and, and Rublevsky uh, and some of the other seconds, that they were uh, part of Team Kramnik and they were all playing one E4. And, and, and Team Anand is completely shocked. Like, uh, Kramnik, he will never play one D4 is what Anand said. Yeah? And suddenly they say, yeah, but if all the seconds are, are one E4 players, then uh, chances increase that uh, he may actually switch to one E4. And, and what did we prepare? Well, the dragon. And, right. and let's, get, let's, let's go over that again. Yeah? And they go over it again, and, and they find holes left, right, and center. So hmm. they become extremely nervous uh, one day before game one. Uh, and then it turns out that during the entire match, Kramnik never plays it. Probably with, with hindsight, he, he regrets that. But um, I think nowadays, uh, it's not even so important what uh, a second plays. I think um, a, a second can study any kind of openings. I think seconds are much more uh, selected, especially nowadays, on how they work with the engine together. Because just following the first line of, of the engine is something almost anyone can do. But um, um, putting creative ideas into an engine and testing them and, and maybe ideas that are the fourth or the fifth line of the engine based on your understanding of the position, I think that's a real added value. And, and for example, that Carlsen had recently Dubov as, as a second, I think uh, that was a fantastic asset. Dubov is, is such a creative player with all kinds of new ideas in the opening. I'm sure Magnus had huge benefit of that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's amazing. I, two of my recent guests have um, made heavy use of engines in their opening books. Um, yeah, and it seems like someone like like Larry Kaufman, Grandmaster, but not not a player as strong as uh, Laurent Fresnay or any of the members of of Team Anon. But in this day and age, it may be that. I mean, of course, Hikaru Nakamura famously has has worked with a, a twenty three twenty four hundred level second for many years and it it i think he said in a recent interview that that the the wind is sort of blowing in that direction in terms of uh who what is what is valued most um by by the elite players yeah um 
So one other follow-up, as, as we allude to, obviously, openings play an outsized role in, in this book. So a couple people were wondering, uh, Hugh Jordan on the Facebook thread um, was wondering if you considered making a chessable repertoire, and Paul H. on Twitter was asking about uh, the book briefly appeared on Forward Chess, but then was no longer there. So I think people are wondering if there's going to be any sort of electronic version of this beautiful book. Yeah. So the the question on, on chess... Uh, on, on forward chess is, is, is relatively easy to answer. It was never the intention to have this book in, a, in an e-version. And, and the reason, although as bad as it is, is piracy. Uh, especially the, the wonderful pictures can be stolen quite easily from an uh, e-book version. You can make print screens and do all kinds of things. And that doesn't do justice to the high-quality work that, that Kathy and Eric has, have produced. So when I signed already the contract with Quality Chess, uh, we put a lot of thought and we had discussions around it and we decided this book uh, will only be for print. Um, now, it, it might be that uh, in a year or in two years, uh, we change our minds, but that was the initial idea. Okay. And, 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 and by a silly accident uh, in, in Quality Chess, because they put all their books on Forward Chess, they had forgotten about it uh, and and... It was just an unfortunate thing, and that's why after two days or so, it was withdrawn. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and and the current idea is really to have it in print, and I don't think anyone can help. But the situation with piracy is just really bad. Uh, if people want to put the book on the on the scanner, I'm I'm not going to stop that. But you get uh, clearly much worse quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the fact of print screens of, of these fantastic pictures, which uh, I think are, are absolutely amazing, and then putting them in your in your own website or in your own blog, that was a real risk. And, and we didn't find a, a good solution to that. Okay, that, that makes sense. Mystery solved. Yeah, I was one of the people who I saw, <laughs> I saw it on... Uh, I saw it on Forward Chess and was super excited to get it. And then I went back the next day when I was at my computer and was already yeah. buying them. Where'd it go? <laughs> yeah. then the, but, uh, the, but again, I'm sorry, just sorry to cut yeah. you off, but I'm glad that that happened because I wouldn't have seen how beautiful this book is. Yeah. Yeah. Then the second question on, on making a repertoire, uh, I didn't fully understand the question. So correct me if I'm wrong, because this is my own interpretation, Ben. Okay. Well, basically... Uh, Whether the question was uh, whether I would make a repertoire out of the openings that are in the book. Yeah. Well, of course, Chessable is well known for its uh, spaced repetition format, where if you want to memorize an opening, they kind of have... um, uh, unique, you you have a unique ability to play through the moves and quiz yourself. So you, you, by turning it into a repertoire, you would enable you would basically make it easier for people to to glean whatever opening lessons are to be uh, derived from the book. Um, so it's, um, I mean, he mainly I think meant will the book be on Chessable because all of Chessable's books have the uh, move trainer methodology. Yeah, so the entire book, definitely not for the reason I, I just explained, but translating uh, it into an opening repertoire out of the book uh, could be a good option. Uh, in yeah. all honesty, I hadn't thought about it. Um, yeah, and this was from Hugh Jordan, who who mentioned that as, as an aside that you have done a series on the Philidor for, for New in Chess. 
yeah, many years ago. And and he, he I think he even put a link there. But when I clicked on it, it was something like not uh, not accessible. Okay. So I, I was wondering if if it was a, a, a dodgy site or something. I don't know. But indeed, I uh, I wrote some uh, new and chess uh, yearbook article on the Filidor. But I think, yeah, it's a, it's an option uh, to make a repertoire out of it. In in all honesty, after seven years of, of working on this, my, my first thought was not about uh, producing something new. Uh, but if there's a lot of interest, then it's an option. Okay. Uh, similarly, I've also been thinking about whether I should uh, produce an, uh, uh, some sort of lecture around the leadership lessons. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of leadership lessons in the book, but... Uh, in terms of layout, we've deliberately chosen not not to highlight them. So it, 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 there there are no capitals around this lesson or, or that lesson. So making an, a kind of summary and and then a lecture and and potentially either giving those lectures in the corporate world or over internet, uh, that's something that's been been on my mind. Okay. Yeah. And that that brings us to we had a few questions along those lines, including one from. Uh, recent uh, contributor to the podcast, uh, Reuven Fishers. And Reuven asks uh, specifically, what lessons can we learn from Anand's team regarding leadership and personal growth that we can use in our daily lives off the chessboard? So not to step on your future presentation too much, but what do you think the um, the uh, the take-home lessons are? What, what comes to mind first for you, Michael? Yeah, so indeed, I, I would need to do some more work around it. But uh, to give some examples, I, I think... First of all, uh, around how you develop uh, or maybe even how you select a team. I think uh, quite a bit of thought went into um, selecting the different team members. And, and it was uh, clearly not, not, not randomly or, or just selecting uh, so, some nice friends or something. No, uh, it was a very deliberate strategy around uh, each person that was chosen. And I think there are clearly some lessons around uh, diversity in the team um, that, that can be translated into the corporate world. So there's a theme around that. And then also in how do you then, after you've chosen that diverse team, make it an inclusive team in which they uh, bridge each other's culture, in which they respect each other and, and, and they grow as a team. And I, I think uh that challenge uh, that Tiba Anand had in the, in the, especially in the, in the first training camp before Bonn uh was quite big and and yeah i think there's some good insights i think then obviously there there's a theme around strategy development so how do you work uh, with the end in mind and and then backwards uh, all the way to, in this case to potential opening lines but i think that that concept again in in business life is is a very valid one in terms of can you analyze uh, the point B where you want to be and how do you translate that back to where you are today and, and what are different ways to get there and, and what could be creative ways. So something around that. Then I think the, the, the book clearly has uh, shown an, a kind of history over the use of technology, which I think uh, drastically changed from uh, Ripka Free, uh, which uh, in 2008 simply missed uh, uh, winning uh, peace sacrifices were, was not in, it, in its horizon. And some of the dragon lines the team had prepared nowadays with stockfish, you find that they're completely refuted, but back, back then not. So that technology development, but especially how you 
work with the engine and how that has changed and how it has influenced uh, uh, overall, uh, I think is something that uh, I think there's a lot of interest in corporate world on, on how uh, chess as a sport uses technology, uses machine learning, AI, and, and data analytics. Uh, I think there's something around statistics, around uh, Nielsen that he did. Yeah. That could be, it could be very much uh, into uh, um, this. Then I think uh, decision-making process on, on in which cases uh, who makes a certain decision. There, was, there were some clear examples of paranoia in the team. And I think, again, that, that can happen in a business context also, that uh, instead of single-point accountability, uh, everyone is looking at each other, but no one is taking a decision, and you, you drive each other crazy. Um, so, and, and then maybe another one, just thinking out loud, could be something around coping mechanisms. I earlier talked about level of confidence and, and how you ensure that, that you move into the, to the right spirit for, for a game. But that whole thing around coping mechanisms, how do you deal with setbacks? Uh, how do you recover in, in case uh, you get bad news at work? How do you uh, stay resi resilient? I think those kind of things uh, you also see coming back in the book. Yeah, you see it both, of course, from, from the principles, from the people playing in the world championship, but also from the team. Um, the the amount of stress that these guys are under, I, I didn't fully appreciate until reading your book. I mean, you you just described um, like Kajim Dhanov just being totally fried, just being basically unable to move when the World Championship match is over. And this is after they won, you know, let alone if you have to deal with a devastating loss on top of that. Yeah, and, and there's a there's a funny or interesting story that when I approached him for, for this book project, yeah, it was... Uh, a couple of years ago, and it was very much a, a project. There was no no book yet. Uh, I had interviewed Nielsen and Ganguly, so I had some evidence to show. Uh, he first was dismissive and reluctant. He didn't want to talk to me. Well, he and I uh, know each other well. We've played in in the same team in the in the Dutch uh, club league, and uh, we're we're very friendly towards each other. But he absolutely didn't want to discuss this topic at all, and and the reason was that uh, basically after uh, both the Sofia match, but definitely Moscow, where he was, besides working incredibly hard, also hit by his allergies and, and had uh, trouble with breathing. Um, he, after that match, after those two matches, he had symptoms of a burnout. And, and it took him six to nine months to recover, including having uh, nightmares, including uh, not being able to do anything. I think in one of the matches, there's a story that um, he returns to the hotel and just watches uh, 24 hours uh, comedies. On, yeah, family on guy, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think those are illustrations on, on how hard it was for him. And when I approached him with the idea of, of this book uh, project, he was dismissive because he was really afraid that uh, the horror would come back in his mind, <laughs> and he, wow. he would he would relive everything. And it took uh, several attempts from me to to persuade him to collaborate. Now, once he did the first interview, and he reflected on it, it turned out he was very happy. Yeah, because uh, the preparation I did, the kind of questions I asked. Uh, focused a lot on, on on highlights 
and and it, it didn't turn out to be uh, reliving all the all the terrible moments as as he had uh, as he had feared. So after that, it was smooth. But moving uh, to convince him to to do that first interview was a very big job, and it was one of the points where I thought here the project can actually break down. Hmm. Sounds like there's a good lesson for me when people say they don't want to do this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, I just just need to harass them a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although it helps that you're friendly to begin with, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's fascinating. And of course, I also thought it was interesting that I mean, you you mentioned, of course, he has a family. So I mean, that obviously has to go into it as well. I mean, uh, some uh, some of these, um, you know, some of these um, team members have families and some don't. But obviously, in addition to just the physical and mental toll, you're you're away from your family for all that time. So it's um, yeah, it's quite an undertaking. Yeah, uh, one of the seconds said to me, if you work for Anand, you, you give up in one year, uh, maybe six to eight months of your life. Yeah. And, and you hardly see, see see your family, maybe over Skype. And uh, yeah, and and is it worth it? On, on one hand, uh, every chess player knows that uh, you're ambitious, you want to perform and, and working with the, with the world's best player is, of course, uh, immediately... Um, appealing to to all kind of positive energy and immediately you want to do like Wojtasek and Ganguly and jump out and say yes I don't need to know anything else yeah but if you've gone through the experience before you know how hard it is yeah and and then you start to doubt is this the right thing to do yeah you only live once do I really want to spend all this time again for something I've done before and and yeah those are valid questions yeah, for sure relevant. And also even the little insight like that um that Anand's family, Anand's son was back in India during the Moscow match. I, I was a, a, a little I mean certainly it makes sense, but I hadn't thought about something like that. I mean these are long matches and when you add in the preparation it's a supreme sacrifice. It is. And and it makes a big big difference also. And and uh, even uh, before the match, uh, you start thinking about: Should I take him with me? Do I do I uh, feel better if if he's around? But maybe it's not the right thing for him. Yeah, well, what's what's the right thing to do? All all those kind of things uh, cross your mind. Yeah. Um, so one line of questioning that I don't think we've hit. Obviously, we can't cover everything from the book. I mean, there's just so much detail. It's such a treasure trove. But uh, Nicholas Noel on the Facebook um, Chess Book Collectors group uh, asked, which aspects of Anand's preparation and work can translate to a club player's approach? What do you think about that one, Michael? I, yeah, I think on a club player, it's a great question because I actually, uh, the first couple of people who read the book are uh, friends of mine uh, and on an international master level and even GM level. And, and they all like the book. But they all say this book uh, is, is even much more for, for the average club player. Because I think, if, and also thinking back about the time when I was uh, coaching and training lots of club players, uh, when you think about um, enjoying chess and, and improving as a chess player, which I think every club player wants, although you know you're never going to become world champion anymore, you want to improve. And why? Because improving gives you energy and, and, and makes the game more fun. So I think uh, ultimately, if you think about coaching and training uh, club players, it's very different than juniors. Juniors, it's all about 
giving them uh, the right type of exercises and go as fast as possible. When, when club players want to be trained, they want a combination of what I would say uh, entertainment and inspiration and some good lessons learned. And you need to have that in, in the right balance. And, and that's what I try to achieve in the book. That uh, when you read it, you feel inspired. When you when you go over the games of Anand, you will never play at his level. But hopefully, you get inspired by the beautiful things that he created. I, I would say some of the games are in, are a piece of art in a way. Yeah, if if I think about the Nimzo Indian game he won in the bond match against Kramnik, where he puts all his pieces to the back rank. And it's just a fantastic concept, actually. And then he starts slowly, slowly pushing Kamnik back. It's just amazing and, and very original. I, I think I could never play like that. But is it ins- inspirational? Absolutely. And with that, I actually play myself on a much higher uh, inspired level, m- more confidence by n- my next club match. Um, and I think that's important. So I think that's one thing for a club player to get out of this book. It's inspiration. I think second of all, there there's just a, a lot of lessons learned around opening theory that directly translate into your own play. Yeah? The type of positions you want to play. But also I try to explain every opening idea about what's the concept behind it. Uh, why are certain moves being played? So like I said, every three, four moves, there's a diagram. I think uh, there's a lot of text around uh, what what is the idea behind a certain line, uh, why was this chosen, why other alternatives not. So I think that should also help a, a club player. And then thirdly, I think just, just the normal things that we talked before a little bit in the leadership space, but how do you cope with a setback? Or, or how can you benefit if you notice that your opponent is not uh, completely fit that day, is not feeling so well. What type of game should you aim for? All those kind of things you can find back in the book. You're an excellent book salesman, Michael. It's a, sh- it's a shame you're giving the proceeds of the book away. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I never studied sales. I'm actually a finance and accounting background. So it's, it's a nice compliment, I guess. But um, I, I think... Um, I do need help in, in terms of maximizing uh, the proceeds for, for the charity. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no way I'm going to sell a lot of books by myself. So <laughs> indeed, it, it's word of mouth and, and hopefully people who become enthusiastic and who like the idea. And do you have any thoughts yet about what charity you might uh, give it to, give the proceeds yeah. to? Yeah, there are several, several thoughts. Uh, first of all, in, in all transparency, my royalties will only come in after year one. Okay. So uh, there, there was no advance like many other uh, chess authors do, do, do receive. Uh, I, I didn't. And uh, so I still have time. It, it will be around November next year that I will receive the first royalties. Uh, and I have time time to think. And this is not uh, – you may have noticed that in, in the in the foreword I put my email now, I, I'm not hoping that everyone will put forward their, their own charity. That's, that, that's not the idea. The idea of the email was that people can interact with me if they have questions and uh, on the book or, or thoughts or, or want to have coaching or, or lecture. That, that's very much welcome. But in terms of uh, charity, I, I am still a bit open-minded. 
and there's basically two categories uh, which I would say uh, the non-chess versus the chess ones. So mm-hmm. in the non-chess ones, I'm, I'm currently thinking about something around climate change, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is very high on, on uh, the global agenda of everyone. Uh, and, and I think many chess players uh, have the intellect to understand what a big risk it is to our planet and, and that we should really do something about it. And uh, every small step, I guess, can help. So I'm not saying it's a specific charity in itself yet. Uh, I need to do a bit further research. I also want to uh, make sure that uh, these are charities that have proper credentials and, and do the right thing and, and don't have large bureaucratic organizations. But that, that's a category. The, the other category would be in the chess world. And, and then I'm thinking, obviously, about things like uh, chess for kids. But also lots of people like yourself, Ben, uh, and, and people like Mark Crowder, lots of people in the chess world who do, I think, the right thing for us as, as chess players, make, make it a, a nicer and happier world. Uh, but a lot of those initiatives are, are not sustainable financially, and, and, and they, they're dependent to some extent on donations. So clearly that's also high on my list to, to help that. Like I said, it's, it's supposed to be an inspiring book, and, and hopefully uh, with that I can contribute to other inspiring people. Wow, that's great to hear. And obviously Mark Crowther is just an absolute saint for the work that he does. I'm, I, this, this project is my baby and I love it too, but I'm, I do this part-time. Mark is, Mark is blood, sweat, and tears all the time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I have a few suggestions for, uh, for both of the, the realms you mentioned, both climate change and, of course, chess projects. But we'll keep those offline because it's yeah. ultimately ultimately your decision. Yeah. Um, so just just so, Sorry, but, but to be very clear, so the idea is not uh, that uh, there will be the, the Michiel Foundation and I'll take the, the CEO position. And I'll <laughs> right, to pay yourself a nice salary, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's absolutely not the idea. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I think um, we've hit most of the major topics. I would like to hear a little bit more about your chess um, before before we yep. let you go, Michael. So you you play in the the Dutch league. How else? How often do you get to play aside from that? Yeah. So this is a really sad story. So I, <laughs> I played a lot up till about two thousand nine, I think two thousand ten, around that that stage. And then uh, two things happened. One is uh, I started thinking about this project, and and especially as of two thousand twelve. Uh, that took away uh, most of the time to to spend on chess. Um, it was like a, a job on the side next to my full-time job. The other thing people may recognize is that as you grow older, it, it, it's harder and harder to combine a, a more than full-time corporate job with also playing chess actively. It, it's somehow uh, your brain gets exhausted and, and it's it's very hard. And, and you keep thinking, oh, maybe I should uh, resign from my job and, and just play chess. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking back about uh, some people may remember more than 20 years ago, uh, Mick Greengard was uh, writing this blog where he was displaying his lifestyle of a New York uh, flat with uh, chess all day and some pizza boxes. And it sounded like a paradise to me. And I'm, I'm still thinking, yeah, maybe I should do that, yeah? Mm-hmm. But in the end, you, you still need your corporate job to, to pay the bills and maybe also to keep yourself a bit a bit sane and, and not just not just play chess. So as a result, 
that's still a dream at some point to only do chess. But for now, there's the balance with the corporate job. And I find it very hard to combine both. Um, but now that the book is finished, I'm actually uh, starting playing again. Uh, I won my uh, my club match a couple of weeks ago um, after uh, blundering a pawn in the, in the opening or blundering, but basically thinking I would have compensation, uh, which I clearly didn't. Uh, but luckily, I managed to turn around the game. But I think that was more uh, due to luck than, than to wisdom. Uh, and I certainly hope to play more. Uh, I also hope to uh, to play uh, one or two tournaments next year again, and and to get back to uh, to chess coaching, which has always been a passion of me. Okay, and as you said, your email address I, I'll put in the show description. Um, but but before before we let you go, um, and yeah, I mean, by the way, I, of course, I relate to a lot, a lot of what you said about what, the the competing voices in one's head about wanting wanting to play chess, but balancing it with a uh, other life considerations, but uh, Brian Karen, who I believe is the founder, certainly I'm one of the administrators of the uh, Chess Book Collectors Group on Facebook. So shout out to him for all the work he does. Uh, asked if you would. Well, you already mentioned that you would consider a future book on world championships, but it's among other things you're considering. But he also asked, what are your favorite books on world championships other than this one? Yeah. Oh, that's a difficult question. Because normally people don't ask specifically world championships. Yeah, they they ask what are your favorite chess books. Yeah, well, we can get to that too if you want. <laughs> but um... and 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 then uh, I've always been very inspired by the Mark Dvoretsky books, which mm-hmm. are incredibly difficult. But in, in general, something that's incredibly difficult uh, has a lot of appeal to me. Yeah, I I've, in all honesty, I think those books are maybe only for twenty three, twenty four hundred plus level. Yeah. Yeah. But. But it's 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 absolutely amazing what what Mark Dvoretsky did in his earlier years. I think the later books are are just a lot of tests, uh, and 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 they're they're still very good tests. But I think most of his insights were published in in his earlier books and are missing a bit in in his later books. So that's that's on the general question on our favorite chess books. But um, there are also some fantastic uh, historical chess books. Uh, but uh, if I mention uh, the Zurich book by by Bronstein, yeah, no no one is going to be surprised. Right. Uh, I think uh, the writings, uh, although very limitedly uh, available in in English by Bent Larsen, are hugely insightful and and, and absolutely great. Um, if I think about world championships, I thought that the the concept uh, of my predecessors with uh, Gary Kasparov was was quite nice uh, in in terms of giving that overview um, but also again those books can be quite difficult some of the annotations are a bit yeah high level and uh, it's it's a strange mix I find those books uh, as a Dutch person I, I really liked some of the writings of Max Ober uh, and I think uh, still a bit um, uh, not so well appreciated as, as maybe he should have been. Uh, but I think, yeah, there, there's so many great world champions uh, and, and books on them. I've actually wondered sometimes, and, and maybe people on Facebook will point out to me, I always missed a, a, a great book on Spassky. There, there was a book on uh, with a Dutch author, I think Jan van Reek, but I, I don't think Spassky has published a lot of his own thoughts and annotations. Um, and he, yeah, so that, that's one that I'm missing. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not familiar with that book either. I have to try to track it down. And of course, I think a few people on the forums were mentioning uh, the classic From London to Alista, uh, sort of um, maybe, I mean, it's a lot different book, but maybe more similar to yours than than others. Although, again, it's it's written by the principles and it doesn't, it doesn't go into nearly the level of detail in terms of like opening prep and stuff like that. Although yeah, a, great, a great book, to be clear. Yeah, absolutely, great book, and uh, and I looked at it uh, quite a lot as uh, as inspiration for my book. Uh, but again, I I, I missed uh, the mistakes and and the errors, and uh, I'm just a person who who enjoys also learning from from mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes myself, and actually uh, reflecting them on uh, on almost a daily basis on on what I could have done better, uh, I find very helpful. And and yeah, I try to put that a bit in in the book in in not only writing positive things, and yeah. it's it's something the seconds were surprised about that I sometimes asked, yeah, uh, what could you have done differently? What could you, what would you have done uh, slightly different uh, now with hindsight? Uh, what went wrong? Uh, why didn't uh, certain things go, go in the direction as anticipated? For example, uh, in the Sofia match. Uh, after game four or five, Fishy was completely in control and, and he was up. And later in the match, he, he lost control. Uh, and then uh, there's this uh, fantastic uh, win in, in the final game. Uh, but how he lost control, I asked a lot of questions to the team. Uh, what went wrong? Oh, yeah. And, and what you see is that probably in the, in the openings, they were uh, too narrowly uh, focused on, uh, on the Catalan and, and didn't dare to switch, which they should have done earlier. Yeah, yeah. And that the Sofia match, of course, being the Topalov match and in the Gelfand match, you can, really, you can really feel the suffering of Team Anand as they feel like they're being um, there. The Gelfand's preparation was very good and he, he kept, kept catching them by surprise. Um, yeah, yeah they, they thought at some point the match was gone. Yeah, and and uh, how Anand uh, recovered is is amazing. And in his own words, Anand even said uh, it was to a large extent luck. Uh, he yeah. couldn't explain it in any other way. Now, I think yeah. that that's also his modesty. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, that thought crossed my mind as well. One more follow up, Michael, about your playing. I, I I can't help but wonder. So you said you you had a miscalculation that cost you a pawn in a recent game. But do you? When you did sit down to play or when you have gotten the chance to do so, did you feel like uh, a work of this magnitude helped your chess or did it not really make a discernible difference over the board? No, it, it makes a huge difference. I, I feel that I, I uh, sit more relaxed behind the board and I'm, I'm much better in, in reflecting uh, during the game. So what they call, I go in and out of the game. Uh, and take a 30,000 feet view on, on what's actually happening in the game, but also with myself. And, and that's based on, on the project that I did. I think uh, before I, I wrote the book, uh, a game for me was uh, hard work, was uh, first remembering theory and trying to play those moves quickly, and then going into a lot of calculation mode, maybe also because of uh, uh, the earlier mentioned Tovaretsky books. Yeah, And I would try to calculate, by the way, uh, all, all the way out and I would also always try for very complicated positions I think okay. uh, now with the book uh, done and also in the recent game uh, I'm, I'm much better in, in observing during the game what the flow of the game is uh, and, and, and how I feel do I feel tensed 
uh, do I feel uh, disappointed? And I think with that, I'm, I'm better in, in correcting during the game myself towards towards the right focus and, and the right attitude. And also changing from calculations to asking questions more like, uh, what is it my opponent is aiming for? Or in this case, in when I had the lost position, uh, what would need to happen uh, to, to turn it around? And, and start thinking more about those kind of questions instead of just calculating and seeing one losing line after another and mm-hmm. and then making some some desperate move which is maybe even worse than all the options you considered and and i think this is really a reflection of the work i've done okay so listeners if you want to get better at chess all you have to do is spend seven years writing a 500 page <laughs> chess book <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> no, that's all. N- nothing to it <laughs> Okay, well, well, Michael, I want to thank you again. I mean, this book uh, is just just so good. I mean, you've you've provided, you've uncovered so much detail that that uh, previously might not have seen the light of day. I mean, there's only, you know, uh, we're talking about maybe ten people in the world with access to this information before you brought it out. So we we may or may not have been able to to see this, and for you to to have devoted this many years to it and this much attention to detail. And then on top of that, to do it uh, for free is just, um, I I can't thank you enough for for the book and for for taking the time to do this interview. Thanks, Ben. I I really appreciate it. And there's one plea, and and that is, uh, I really hope we can keep uh, the dialogue going. So feel free to connect with me on on Facebook, on Twitter, or, or send me an email. Yeah. It's like you said, uh, it's been a labor of love. Uh, I try to inspire people and, and I really enjoy it when I get reactions, when people have questions. So please don't be shy, uh, whether it's uh, next week, next month, in, in six months. Uh, I very much welcome any type of reaction. Okay, yeah. So you guys can chime in the Facebook Chessbook Collectors, the Facebook Perpetual Chess Podcast page, and I'll, of course, link to your your Twitter handle uh, as as well, and your email address will be in the show description. So, um, yeah, I um, look forward to continuing the dialogue, and um, and uh, good luck uh, with with the book. I mean, I, I'm everything I've heard has been good, and I loved it. So, I think uh, you'll continue to, <laughs> to be lavished with praise for all of your work after all these years. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. And I thought it was uh, was absolutely wonderful to have this chat. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy, but also to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether via word of mouth, positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. All of that stuff helps more people find out about the show. But most of all, I want to thank the people who support the show financially. You guys have enabled me to continuously work to improve and now expand the Perpetual Chess podcast offering. So for that, I am forever grateful. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice's Twitch channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clef, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Doré, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster9000, where you've been hiding, Moonmaster, you haven't asked a question in a while. 
Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I would also like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, Daylin Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect, Donnie Ariel, or possibly not I am elect. Either way, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt of Chessable, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, James Bonastia, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, JJ Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspide, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paula Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Peter Sodi, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Darty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, WGM, Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrancouz, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I will catch you guys next week. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.